We are in the midst of a study for the last, um, well, through the fall here, uh, entitled Kingdom Shift, Restoring Right Priorities. And uh, this particular study is bringing us through a portion of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to complete this study um, next year, uh, leading up to, during Advent, uh, not Advent, during Lent, leading up to uh, Easter of 2011. But we've been um, walking through Mark 11 through 13, and I just want to back up for a moment. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 11, and uh, we're going to just kind of, I, I want to lead into the message this morning by just giving you a little bit of context in terms of where are we right now? Where, where, where have we been and where are we being led into? So um, we started in Mark chapter 11 with uh, the triumphal entry. Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And uh, as he comes into Jerusalem, of course, praise breaks out and there's uh, great expectation and excitement among the people. He's coming in during the Passover season when already um, the streets are thronging with pilgrims who are coming to Jerusalem. But the first thing that he does after coming into the city, well, first he, he goes in, he looks at the temple, leaves, comes back in and clears the temple. And this, here we see Jesus, not Jesus meek and mild, but Jesus in the righteous anger of his father coming in, the zeal of the Lord upon him, saying, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it a den of robbers. You are blocking people from experiencing the presence of God. You are creating um, hindrances and distractions, and you are coming in and you are doing... Um, fraudulent things, and uh, this will not stand in my father's house. And he clears out the temple, and then there's the withered fig tree, and we talked about that. I won't take time to go into that. But all of this creates a, a crisis among the people in terms of authority. Who, what, what is, by, by whose authority are you doing these things? Who gives you the right, Jesus, to come in and clear this temple? Who appointed you, God? Well, God did, <laughs> as Jesus goes on to explain. But then he has this um, series of conversations that begin to take place where those who are, um, those who, who are in opposition to him, some of the leaders of the, of the Jewish uh, faith and, and political structure, begin to question him around a number of different things. First of all, there are those Pharisees who come and try to trick him with a political question. That political question had to do with taxes. So their question was, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus gives this brilliant answer related to the image of God. And says, whose image is on the coin? And in that, the, there's the, the play of whose image is on your life. Because the image of God is on your life. You belong to God. This coin is relatively irrelevant. Yeah, it belongs to Caesar. But in the midst of this, he finds a way through the horns of dilemma that they try to put him in. Then he goes, and then the Sadducees come to him. And the Sadducees more of a, a, a temple political party, come to him actually with a theological question about 
marriage at the resurrection. Now again, it's kind of one of those how many angels dance on the head of a pin sort of questions. It's this, you know, totally made up sort of story about a woman who dies, or her husband dies and has seven brothers and she, you know, because of the, the law, the Mosaic law, she, she, each of the brothers um, marries her, but then um, each of them dies without, her, without having children. And anyway, it's this whole question. But Jesus goes right to the heart of even their question and right at the heart of their unbelief. And he says to them, are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? You don't know the Spirit and you don't know the Word. If you did, you wouldn't even be asking this question. And so once again, Jesus goes right to the heart of things. Now the Sadducees come to Him. Sadducees are the teachers of the law. I'm sorry, the scribes, the experts. Sometimes it's in your, in your Bible translation, it'll say the experts in the law or the teachers of the law. These are the scribes. Now scribe, when we think of scribe, we think of a copyist. We're not talking about a copyist. The scribes are really experts in the text and experts in in the law, and they come and they bring a question um, about which is the most important commandment. So they really bring a religious question. So which commandment is the most important of all of the commandments? Because they're very concerned and interested in the commandments as well as the rules and regulations. And Jesus once again says the most important one is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. So Jesus again goes right to the heart of things and this was explicated beautifully by James last week. I encourage you to go to the website and download the message if you weren't here or sign up for a CD. Very powerful word to our hearts last week through James about this particular passage of Scripture. So we have a political question, a theological question, a religious question, and all of those questions are kind of the backdrop. Now, now at the end of verse 34, Jesus saw, it says, that He had answered wisely, said to Him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then I love this. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. <laughs> Don't you love that? Nobody was going to ask him any more questions. Are you going to ask him a question? I ain't asking a question. Let's, let, yeah. Bill, are you going to ask him? No, no, no. Okay. Bob, you, why don't you? No, I'm not asking him a question. Why? Because every time they asked a question, Jesus went to the heart of the matter, turned things inside to out. <laughs> inside out and upside down and caught them in their own nets. All right, now, this brings us to the passage we're going to look at here this morning, and I'm going to do this expeditiously. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, ha, ha, ha. So now Jesus totally turns the table. They're not going to dare ask him any more questions, but he's going to ask them a question. And I want you to notice that the question he asks them ties together political realities, theological realities, 
and religious realities. So he kind of weaves something back together and asks them a very pointed question. He says this, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Huh. Scratch head. Mumble. Mmm. The large crowd listened to him with delight. <laughs> I love this. They're like, got him there. We're going to talk this morning about pleasing the king in this kingdom shift. Pleasing the king. But first of all, we need to understand about the nature of this king and this kingdom. So here's the question that Jesus asked. How can Christ the king be both the son of David and David's Lord? Now here's why this gets important. Listen carefully. This gets at the heart of the nature of the kingdom of God. Now, just at the very beginning, you know, we were reflecting back on Mark 11. Go back there again. When Jesus comes in to Jerusalem and the crowds are there and they're ecstatic about Jesus coming. And in verse 9 of, of 11, it says, Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now, here's the, here's the deal. Here's what's going on in the heads. There's, there is anticipation and an excitement in the air because they at least have some awareness that perhaps at Passover, the Messiah will come. But they have a particular picture of who that Messiah is. And that Messiah is a son of David. And that Messiah is going to come and restore the earthly kingdom of Israel. The Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. This is the prophetic promise in 2 Samuel. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, the Lord is speaking here to David. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does no wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul when I removed, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne, throne will be established forever. And everybody went, yes, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. He's going to establish an earthly kingdom here now. This also gets at the heart of the nature of the king. Who is this king that is coming? We've heard prophetic 
leave from Isaiah. The people understand there's a prophetic word that has come from Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. And every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord God Almighty will accomplish this. Here is our King. Here is our Messiah. He is coming and he is going to establish his kingdom here on this earth. This was the great hope and cry of the people when Jesus came into Jerusalem at Passover. Here was the murmurings. Here was the wonderings. Here was the, here, here was, here was the hopes and expectations and dreams of a people rising towards a crescendo. But Jesus' question here where He quotes for them. Look at verse 36. Back into our text. Mark 12, 36. Mark 12, 36. David himself, now listen to this, speaking by the Holy Spirit. This wasn't just David's thoughts. This is, here's inspiration. The, 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 the infilling of the Spirit of God into David David spoke these words written for us in Psalm 110. The Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Here's where Jesus begins to turn their expectations and our expectations upside down and inside out. And we end up standing on our head wondering, Why does it all look so different? How can can the Messiah, how can this Lord, how can this King be both David's Son and His Lord? Which really raises the issue, is the Kingdom and the King natural or supernatural? Are we talking about a political kingdom? Are we talking about a geographic realm here? Or are we talking about something else? This particular Psalm 110 shows up in several places in the New Testament. It's a, it's a core scripture used in the New Testament to help us understand the true nature of the kingdom and the king. Peter, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses it at his sermon on the day of Pentecost when the church is birthed. The next great feast after Passover. Passover, we're going to get there, obviously, in our, in our text and, and, and in our ongoing account of Mark. Jesus dies and then is resurrected and lives for all of these days, 40 days, and then ascends into heaven and then 
Ten days later, after the church has been meeting together on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God is poured out in the prophetic promise of Jesus and Peter and, and, you know, all kinds of signs and wonders break out and the Spirit of God begins to speak through them and Peter gets up and preaches and he says this, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the King. And so Jesus turning their expectations upside down is trying to help them discover a truth that we need to discover afresh this morning. And I keep hammering it home because it's so significant to this kingdom shift that God wants to do in us. We need to understand that the kingdom of God is the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. That is what the kingdom of God is. Not a geographic realm prescribed by certain geographic boundaries, but rather the realm and reign of God that transcends all boundaries, all genders, all ages, all ethnicities, all histories, all, you know, every, all generations. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. It's His reign and it's His rule. And He's the one that we're being called to please. Which is now going to bring us to the next question, which king do we serve? Which king do we serve? We're going to walk through this, the rest of the passage here this morning. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces. They like to have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. And He watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. 
Here's what I would contend to you this morning, and as we kind of move towards the close of the message this morning, I think we've moved from sort of political issues and theological issues and religious issues now to heart issues. Jesus is here now sitting with his disciples. The, the rest of everybody else has faded into the background, and now, now Jesus is with his folks. He's with us, sitting, talking with us. And he's asking this question of us this morning. Which king? We have this king and his reign and his rule. Which king do we serve? And he creates this incredible contrast between the religious leaders, the experts in the law, who are walking along in their long white robes and, and, and are very visible and very, you know, uh, very honored and respected. And, and here's this, this poor, powerless widow. This woman who would have no place of honor whatsoever in that culture. And once again, Jesus turns things upside down and inside out. If you serve the natural king, here's some things that, here's the priorities. We're talking about kingdom shift and restoring right priorities. Well, if you're serving a natural king, whether it's yourself, <laughs> or the world around you, Here's what some of your priorities are going to be as explicated here by our experts in the law. One of your priorities is going to be position. You want to have position. You want to be known as someone who has influence, who's important, who's known. Position is very important when natural king priorities rule our heart. Popularity. We like to have, you know, we want to be liked. Everybody to like us. Everybody to be, you know, kind of see us as, you know, want to be our friends. We, we want to have that kind of popularity that's so significant and important. It, it's part of the way sometimes in a twisted way we get our sense of significance through the lens of other people liking us. Power. Oh my, we want to have power. We want to have control. It's really nice we can, we can tell other people what to do or people bow down to us or we get, the, we get the favored place. Oh yes, here. Oh, you've arrived. Come, come. We've got a special place waiting for you. We like to be able to utilize the, the levers of power in our workplace or in our home or in our neighborhoods or wherever it is, whatever position we have, in, even in the church that can, you know, the power. Pleasure. We like to get to the, invited to those good banquets where the good food is. We like to be able to, 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 to feed that place in us that Loves and desires pleasure. And we like that provision. I mean, here's the devouring of widows. You know, we want to make sure that we got ours. Even if it's to the expense of others. It's sort of that fixed pie mentality. You know, you got some, you got 
then I need some of yours because there isn't enough for all of us. I need, I'm going to make sure that I am provided for. These are natural king priorities. I could go into those much more and I'm not going to this morning, but just write those down and begin to reflect on those and begin to ask the Holy Spirit, how, in what ways is my life pursuing these natural king priorities? Because there is another priority list that we're going to look at here very quickly that kind of turns this inside out. Christ the King priorities are humility. Rather than position, we take the place of humility. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of His servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. He, if Jesus is our example and He is our King, what was His priority? He humbled Himself and took on the very nature of a servant. I've said it before, I'll say it again. There's always lots of room at the bottom of the pyramid. There's lots of room at the bottom. Secondly, anonymity. Jesus says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. We don't have to be known. We don't have to have our names in lights. We don't have to have titles and all that sort of stuff. It's all right. Just be a servant. I mean, this woman, we don't know her name. She comes in anonymity. People don't know who she is. There's power in the priority that she has. Vulnerability. Rather than this place of power, there's vulnerability. And I love this in 2 Corinthians 8. Out of the most severe trial their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. And they did not know as we do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. The power of the gift is not in how large the gift is. The power of the gift is in the level of sacrifice that it costs us. It's not how much we give, it's how much we keep. And there's a vulnerability here that this... Now, notice this. And somebody in my study, somebody pointed this out and it just slapped me upside the head. I mean, she... She gave this offering and it was tiny. I mean, these, these coins were the smallest of, I mean, they were hardly worth a thing. They were hardly even worth what they were, you know. But she gave both coins. She could have given one and kept the other. 
But she gave him both. She gave it all. Vulnerable. There was a simplicity here. There wasn't, you know, this, this pleasure piece. She wasn't focused on, you know, the great feast and the table and all the food she'd get. She was just focused on the Lord and in the simplicity of her heart, the provision of the Lord came to her. Do not set your heart on what you'll eat or drink. Don't worry about it. The pagan world runs after all such things. And your Father knows that you need them, but seek His kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been, has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that won't wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes in and no moth destroys for you. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Um, this is, you know, this always cuts close to home in me. And you know it as well in you. I mean, um... I don't know. Do we own our stuff or does our stuff own us? Because the more we got, the more we got to maintain. Right? And you know what I'm talking about. But there's a simplicity that God calls us into when we have His priorities. And then generosity. Remember this. I mean... Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, or as one child put it in his wonderful translation of this verse, not reluctantly or with convulsions. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work rather than our focus on how am I going to make sure that I have what I need, how, Lord, can I be a vessel of You to be blessing the world around me with what they need. Rather than this, it's this. I just urge and encourage you again, if you've not yet stepped into the grace and the joy of giving, I'm telling you, you're missing out on one of the greatest gifts God has given to us. The joy of generosity. I don't talk about my kids much, and I want to be careful, you know, but I'm just... My, my, my kids have started a little neighborhood business, you know, mowing some lawns and raking some leaves and shoveling some walks and, you know... Noah and I were working together yesterday, and, you know, I want to train him to be a man of God and a man of integrity. So we talked about how we do our work. How do we do our work? We work hard. We work with excellence. We go above and beyond. You know, we, we, we work consistently, and, 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 we, and we work with honesty and integrity with the things that we do. And what do we do with this money we earn? We're stewards of it. And we have the grace and gift to give. I've told you, I mean, that's how it started for me when I was a kid mowing lawns. I have started tithing when I was 12 years old, mowing lawns. And God has been faithful throughout my life. And there is times where I've had hardly a thing, trust me. But God has always been faithful to, with generosity. If you've not stepped into the grace 
Oh, tithing, that's one of those Old Testament legalistic things. Oh, well, all right. You want to live there, that's okay. But um, I'll just say to you, yeah, well, the, the, the grace says it's all mine. <laughs> grace puts a much greater demand than the law ever does. So I just get, you know, so the giving of the tithe is simply an opportunity. It's just a discipline that, that, that begins to pump my heart. Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Not where your heart is, there will your treasure be. Previous slide. Where your treasure is, there will your heart go. So you start giving and your heart will start going there. Not just in the tithe, but offerings and, and just your life, your home, your stuff. Give it away. It's fun. Let it be used. You know? I mean, we decided that. I'm sorry. Just, you know, just early on that, you know, the stuff, it's not our stuff. It's just not our stuff. All right? Not that I never struggle. Okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm human, just like you. All right. I'm going to go to the last slide here. So, Liz, can you help me for just a moment? Can we get to that? I'm going to skip some slides here. So, um, well, our Ching, thanks. Here we go. All right, whoever's doing that, that's good. How do we determine the true value of a gift? Oh, sorry, Liz. I'm just going to... Spirit in which it's given... The sacrifice which it involves. Okay, David says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. The spirit in which it's given, the sacrifice which it involves, and the satisfaction of God because it overflows in thanks to God. Now, I want you to notice that this widow's gift, kind of like the woman who washed Jesus' feet with, and wiped it with her hair, this has been told... Her act of generosity, those two little coins have been multiplied exponentially down through the years into I don't know how much, how many billions of dollars because of her obedience. And she thought, oh, I'm just given two little things. When it's given in the spirit in which it's given and when it's given with sacrifice, God is satisfied and it brings thanks. So here we go. The worth of a gift is to be determined not by intrinsic value, by what it costs the giver. The measure of that cost is what is left, not what is given. For the widow to give her mites was noble. For one well-off to give his mite is contemptible. Ooh, ouch. Because you know what? Every one of us in this room <laughs> are well-off. Whether we know it or not, or feel it or not. It's different levels of well-offness. But All right, so... What pleases the king? Here we go. Y'all been really good. There's been a lot of stuff. You've been feeling the weight of it all. So what pleases the king? What's he after? Well, he's after total surrender, radical trust, and sacrificial commitment. All right, there we go. That'll preach. That'll leave them shouting. Yay! Wait a minute. <laughs> Thank you.
Really? Really. This is what he wants, people. This is what he's looking for. This is what he's asking. Nothing less, nothing else. I don't think I'm there yet. But uh, this is where God's taking us. This is where he's taking us individually and corporately.